This last fall, Ken and I introduced um, what we believe to be God's vision for this next season of Antioch. And uh, all this was before that we knew he was moving on. But we introduced this idea of the reconciliation of all things as our best attempt to articulate not only the good news of Jesus and his kingdom, what we know as the gospel, that God's restoring all things to himself through Christ, but it also informs our identity and our vocation as the people of God. That if God is on a mission to reconcile or restore back to right relationship all things in heaven and on earth, and we are part of that mission, then we are not only to be the recipients of that mission of reconciliation, but we are also to become agents or ministers in that mission. We're invited to join Jesus on his mission in the world of reconciling all things back to the Father. And so Ken and I collaborated deeply on that, uh, on that work and on that series that we rolled out last September and October. And in many ways, um, one of the beautiful parts of this transition is that, that that vision and the mission that goes along with it is something that I and the rest of our elders and staff continue to deeply believe God has called us to and that we're going to continue to pursue. And so this series, as we enter into the season of Lent this morning, is something we've had in works for months and uh, just worked out perfectly that it happens to be the, the first day of this kind of new season. And uh, we're going to return to this uh, vision of reconciliation. But this time, as we come back to the vision of reconciliation, we're going to look at it through the lens of what does it look like for us to live as active participants in the mission of God in our daily lives. Okay, and so um, you may remember this image of the cross that we, uh, we presented to you in the fall, done by uh, former intern Paul Krauss, carved out of cardboard, a beautiful picture. Um, and what this really was meant to do was sort of to take the Hebrew concept of shalom, which is right relationship with God, self, others, and the rest of creation, and say that that is really the end goal for this mission of reconciliation, that the world we live in, we know now, is torn by sin and by evil and by pain. And even just as we watch the news this week, we know of the tragedies that have taken place both around the world in our country and even the tragedies that have taken place within this church family this last week. And we have a gospel that's bigger than all of that and says that God is on a mission to make everything new. And so we really are saying that this gospel of reconciliation is the mission of God, but it's also the vocation of God's people. And so we kind of took this idea of others and, and branched it out into three concentric circles. Reconciled relationships within the church, within this family, and with, then within the city and our kind of central Oregon region, and then around the world as well. So the, all these human relationships that exist. And so God is reconciling us to himself, reconciling us to right relationship with one another, reconciling us to right relationship with ourselves, and then he's inviting us to join him on his mission of reconciliation in our city, around the world, and the rest of the creation that he's made. And so that's kind of how we rolled it out last spring or last fall, and uh, and we're going to come back to it this morning and throughout this series. But the emphasis will now be. What does it look like to actually practice reconciliation? And so I hope you got one of these books when you came in. These are super cool, by the way. Um, if uh, We've got ushers that can throw a couple of these down the aisles. If uh, Slip up your hand if you need one of these. And you're going to want one for the next seven weeks as we're on this journey towards Easter. So if you don't know, um, Lent is the season that Christians all around the world for centuries now have been setting aside 40 days uh, leading up to Easter Sunday. And it's really a season where we kind of um, follow Jesus on his journey of 40 days in the wilderness and 40 days set apart to receive identity from God, to remove distractions, to separate ourselves as much as possible from the hustle and bustle of everyday life and to have a season of preparation, a season of self-examination and confession, and ultimately a season where we get ready to celebrate the resurrection on Easter Sunday. And so 
um, as we know, many people and Christians throughout the world celebrate Lent in different ways. One of those is by observing a fast. And so uh, I know some of you guys already, as we enter into the season of Lent, have talked about what you're going to give up or what you're fasting from uh, over the course of the next 40 days. And that's great. And I would encourage you, if you feel like that's something God's asking you to do, to to think about that. Um, But what we're calling the church into collectively this season is that we would participate in this mission through a set of practices. And so each week for the next six Sundays, we're going to be looking at kind of one of these domains or one of these boxes and unpacking the corresponding practice. And so this morning, for example, we'll talk about this box at the top um, of being reconciled to God and the corresponding practice, um, in our language for it, is communion. What does it look like to live life in close relationship with God, in a living awareness of his presence and of his voice, and to receive our identity from Jesus? And so week one will be this idea of practicing communion together. And the hope and the heart is that this isn't just a sermon series, but that throughout the week, the same way you might consider fasting or giving up something for Lent, that Each week, together, we would say, how would we practice this this discipline of engagement in our daily lives throughout the course of the week? And so each week, for the next six weeks, there will be some conversation and then some some suggestions on what that might look like. And so we'll get to today's at the end of of the morning. But this is what we're really wanting to call uh, the church into in this season. And at a bigger or higher level, the shift is moving from being uh, spectators of the church to active participants in the mission of God. That our belonging to this church community wouldn't so much be about just showing up for a service on Sundays, but it would be really about the other six days of how we are living as ministers of reconciliation in our neighborhoods, in our workplace, in our school, in the places where we play and hang out throughout the other six days. And so this set of practices is meant to be integrated into everyday life. And some of it will have to do with what do you need to remove from your life this week? So for example, as we talk about a life of communion, we may say, what, what do you need to say no to? What do you need to turn off? What do you need to tune out for the next six days in order to pay attention to God? And uh, so we're not prescribing anything ultra-specific, but just saying, would you join us in a journey and in a 40 days of practicing reconciliation? Not just talking about it, not just learning about it, not just agreeing with it, but actually starting to live into some of these rhythms. So that's where we're headed. Um, You'll want one of these beautiful artwork done by our good friend Scott Erickson, a set of new icons that kind of represent and correspond uh, with each of these practices. So that's where we're headed. Sound good? Okay, very, very good then. Um, Would you... Oh, we already, we already did uh, John 15, but that's going to kind of be our text, and so we'll, uh, we'll hit that a little bit. This morning, we're going to come to this first practice of communion, which is the idea that um, central to the gospel, the good news about Jesus, is that God has made a way for us to be reconciled into right relationship with himself. And this is something that feels really basic and fundamental to most elementary understandings of the gospel is that uh, we get our sins forgiven and we get to have a relationship with God that we wouldn't have had otherwise. But this has to be the starting point for this entire conversation. And even as we move into sort of a practice-based conversation related to discipleship, it's super important to me that this whole thing is rooted in the gospel, that it's rooted in grace, it's rooted in identity and that all these practices we're talking about aren't going to just be a whole bunch of ways to try to gain God's favor or feel better about our spirituality or earn grace or something like that. All of this is in response to who God is and to his grace. And so some of the thoughts I'm going to share in the next few minutes are are things that you've heard from me before, and it's not because I didn't have time to put anything new together this week, but it's because I really do believe that this is the right place for us to start this journey um, of Lent, this journey of practice, and uh, really this new season together. 
as a church. And so um, there's a famous cl- Christian classic book called Knowledge of the Holy by A.W. Tozer. And the very first line in that book uh, goes like this. He says that the, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Now, this is a book I highly recommend, and I've read it several times uh, throughout my life and uh, would recommend it to you if you haven't read it. But what I want to do for a moment is respectfully disagree with Mr. Tozer. Because I, I get what he's trying to say, and I agree with it at that level, but I, I would actually say that at a higher level, even existentially, if you will, that the most important thing about you, or the most important thing about me, isn't actually what comes into my mind when I think about God. It's what comes into God's mind when he thinks about me. That's the real thing that shapes my identity, that gives my life meaning and purpose. And my goal then would be to learn how to see God and the way that he's looking at me and gain his perspective. So I want to see God as he really is, yes. But if we're talking about who I am, then the most important thing actually has to do with who God thinks I am and how God sees me and what God feels about me, okay? So I've showed this clip before, but I have to show it again because it captures this conversation so well. It's from a movie called The Way, Way Back, and uh, it's a kind of coming-of-age story about the 14-year-old kid named Duncan who, in this opening scene of the movie, is on his way to go spend the summer with his mom's boyfriend and the family at the mom's boyfriend's beach house. And the boyfriend's played by Steve Carell, a really painful jerk kind of character. And uh, in these just opening three minutes of The Way, Way Back, we kind of catch a glimpse into this conversation related to how do we see ourselves. So let's watch this together. Duncan. Duncan, are you sleeping? No. Let me ask you something. On a scale of one to 10, what do you think you are? Duncan, I'm asking you how you see yourself. Scale of one to 10. I don't know. I can't hear you, bud. You have to speak up. I don't know. What, what don't you know? How you see yourself? You don't have any opinion. I'm just asking. Pick any number, scale of one to 10. Just just shout it out, just say a number. A six. A what? A six. I think you're a three. You know why I think you're a three? You know what would make me say that? No. You don't know, you have no idea. No. I, you gotta speak up, buddy. No! Well, since I've been dating your mom, I don't see you putting yourself out there, bud. Meeting kids your own age? And from what your mom tells me, you just seem content to hang around her apartment? Is that a fair assessment? You're just happy to not do anything? Because, damn, that's... To me, that is a three. But, the good news, I'm here to tell you, so there are going to be plenty of kids, plenty of opportunities for you to take advantage of at my beach house this summer. It's a big summer for all of us, really. You, your mom, me, Steph. One day, we could become a family. So what do you say? Let's try to get that score up, huh? Aim higher than a three? That sound good? You up for that, buddy? 
Just brutal. And here's that, that clip has resonated with me deeply ever since I first saw it uh, several years ago. And the reason why is because I think that if we're honest, for many of us, this is what Christianity feels like. And we have this kind of functional view that our standing with God is based on a sliding scale of approval. And nobody comes out and never says that to us. But within the evangelical subculture that many of us are all too familiar with, there is this caught uh, vision and set of values that would lead us to believe that God's view of me today is dependent upon how well I performed yesterday. That if I were really to ask this question of what does God think of me, how does God feel about me, that my first instinct is to evaluate, well, how good have I been or how bad have I been in my Christian faith? And one of our deepest fears would be that what if God's view of me is actually even worse than I think? What if I think I'm a six and he actually thinks I'm a three? Now, it's tragic and painful, and, and it's really the root behind why Christianity feels like a heavy or empty or burdensome weight to so many people. Because so much of what we try to do then in light of this suspicion that I need to get my number up before God is is say, okay, on this hand, I'm going to do that through kind of a classical uh, attempt at a pious Christian life, right? I'm going to have my devotions every day. I'm going to read my Bible. I'm going to pray. I'm going to not do any of the bad stuff that Christians don't do, and I'm going to only listen to Christian music and read Christian books and go to Christian schools and watch movies starring Kirk Cameron, and like that's what I'm going to do in order to get my number up. And it's performance through piety. Or it's possible to do it on the other side and say, uh, I'm going to try to get my number up through activism, through pursuing whatever the latest social justice cause is, and through living simply and recycling and eating organic and getting in line with whatever march or protest or uproar is happening. I'm going to go around being super enlightened and offended by any Christians that aren't as enlightened as me. And you're doing the same thing, trying to perform, trying to justify yourself, trying to get your number up. Which is why I have a lot of people in my life that I know who have walked away from the Christian faith. And the main reason is because they're just tired of feeling guilty. They're just tired of the endless striving. They're tired of constantly trying to prove themselves to God and to, and to others. And at some point, the whole thing just feels like a whole bunch of empty religion and hypocrisy and judgment and pretending. And yeah, who wants that? Might as well just peace out. And so what's tragic is that we know that this is not what Jesus had in mind. When he came and he started this revolution to make all things new, when he invites us into a restored relationship with the God who made us, clearly this wasn't Jesus' vision for how his followers would experience life, going through our days, trying to earn God's favor or work our way up to a higher number or a better standing. But somehow so much of the Christian experience for many of us does feel performance-based. And so as we start this journey of practicing reconciliation, and as we start this conversation of what does it look like to live in and toward a right relationship with our God, it has to start by asking, what does God see when he looks at us? What does God think about when he sees us? How does God feel about you? How does God feel? <clears throat> so 
If I were to ask you to find a verse in the Gospels that speaks of God's love for us, what comes to mind? John 3.16, exactly. It's the first one that comes to mind for any of us. That for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. John 3.16 captures the heart of the gospel and God's heart for humanity in a really beautiful way. How about from Matthew, Mark, or Luke? Can you think of a verse in the synoptic gospels that speaks of God's love for us? I'm going to save you the embarrassment and the time. There isn't one. (laughs) There isn't one. Now, this is a really weird observation for me to make if it's supposed to be comforting and make you feel like God loves you. But let let me mess with you for a little bit. There is not a single verse in Matthew, Mark, or Luke, the first three spiritual biographies of the life and ministry of Jesus, there's not a single verse that says that God loves you or that God loves people or that God loves the world. Now, that probably sounds like bad news. But here's what you'll find as you actually read through these stories of Jesus. That there is a story of love being told in the Gospels. But it's primarily the story of the love between a father and a son. In all three synoptic Gospels, they begin the inauguration of Jesus' ministry with the account of his baptism, where John the Baptist baptizes Jesus, who's God the Son, and as he comes up out of the water, this Spirit of God descends like a dove, and the voice of the Father from heaven proclaims, this is my Son, who I love. With him, I am well pleased. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all tell that same story. And then again, all three accounts give us the transfiguration story, which is this wild, messy, mysterious moment in in the life of Jesus, which we don't really know what to do with other than to say, if heaven and earth were to collide in the form of a human being, what would that look like? Well, it would probably look like what happened in the transfiguration. And again, in that moment, a voice from heaven says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. All three writers give us this picture. Now think about it. Many of us are familiar with the stories of the Gospels and understand that it tells of the birth and the life and the ministry and the suffering and death and resurrection of Jesus, his disciple-making, his healing, his teaching, and all of that. And it would be easy to simply reduce those stories to a biography about a man on a mission. But if you actually go back and pay close attention to the Gospel accounts, the author's very deliberately and very consistently frame up the entire story to emphasize that this is a love story between a father and his son. That's what this is about. Over and over and over again, the father affirms his love and acceptance of his son. And even that baptism story, that was before Jesus did anything, right? He hadn't done anything cool yet. He'd just kind of been hanging out, building tables or whatever he did. And the father goes, I'm well pleased. I love you. You are my son. And we get this sense that over and over again, Jesus is entirely motivated and moved and operating and living out of this sense of belovedness. That his identity, first and foremost, is that of a son, one who is beloved by his father, which is why the baptism story precedes his journey into Lent, what we call Lent now, the journey into the wilderness. Receiving the loving affirmation of his father gives him identity and strength to face temptation and to go on to live this beautiful, supernatural life of love for others. The gospel writers tell the story of Jesus as a story of love between a father and a son. Now, that's great that God loves Jesus. Our problem is that they still haven't told us that God loves us, which would be great, wouldn't it, right? 
Well, here's what's so important for us to understand. It's that as this story unfolds, and because of the life Jesus lives, the death that he dies, and his victorious resurrection from the dead, the gift of his spirit, and even his ascension into heaven, there's something that's happening. There's a reconciling work that's taking place that the first disciples, I don't think, really understood what was happening, even though Jesus, in places like the vine and the branches, starts to kind of give them language for it. It was really later when the apostle Paul came and the early Christian community started to understand just what it is that had happened as a result of Jesus' uh, finished work. And the result is that we are somehow invited into a reconciled relationship with God that looks way better than anything we ever could have imagined. That that reconciliation, that restoration of relationship is way deeper and way more entwined and way more intimate and permanent and holistic than we ever could have imagined. It's not just that God's cool with us now or that he's no longer mad at us or that he can kind of tolerate us as long as we don't bug him too much. There's a level of reconciliation in the relationship between us and God that's better than anything we could have imagined. And at the heart of it is that the gospel is the good news that God has given himself to us in Jesus. Now, I think most of us who have some exposure to church and a Christian background could come up with a list of things that we receive as benefits because of Jesus' death and resurrection. Right? Let's, let me hear a couple of them. Because Jesus died and rose again, we get what? what? We get eternal life. Good. What else? We get forgiveness of our sins. Good. What else? We get peace, an internal sense of peace. Guidance. Good. We get the gift of the Holy Spirit. The same spirit that empowered Jesus' ministry is given to us. Good. We get a new family, right? We get brothers and sisters, whether we like them or not. We get a new mission. Our life takes on a new purpose, that we're not just floating aimlessly through existence anymore. Right? There's a long list of things that we get. Right? If we went theological speak, we could say we get justification, we get adoption, we get sanctification, we get glorification, all these words that smart people use. The idea is there's a long list of benefits to the gospel that we receive as recipients. But none of those mean anything if the, we don't see that the main thing we get is Jesus himself. So at the heart of this message that's consistently taught throughout the Bible isn't that Jesus is simply a means to forgiveness and eternal life and the Holy Spirit and peace and all this stuff, but that Jesus is the end of our salvation. He is not simply the giver of all these gifts and all these benefits, but that he himself is the gift. Emmanuel, God is with us. He has come to us and given himself to us in Christ. And so the language that the biblical authors use to try to describe this kind of relationship, the only word they can come up with to say, what is the relationship now between Jesus and his people? The closest and best word they can come up with is in. And it's not just that we are next to Jesus or with Jesus or becoming like Jesus or following Jesus or learning from Jesus. The biblical language is that we now are in Christ and that Christ is in us. So the theological phrase for this idea is union with Christ. Union with Christ which is sort of a broad junk drawer term in the scriptures for all the times and all the places that the biblical authors describe the nature of this reconciled relationship, saying we are in Christ and Christ is in us. Over and over again, 164 times in the New Testament, 
the authors use this language of union. In fact, this is how they describe what we call a Christian. The biblical authors rarely call us Christians. They simply refer to us as those who are in Christ or those in whom Christ is. So over and over again, this is the message that the biblical authors are trying to ingrain into our head and for us to think about what does it mean to be restored to right relationship with God? What does reconciliation to him look like? It means union with Jesus, that we are in him and he's in us. Let me give you a few examples, just because if you've read the Bible, you've brushed over this language without ever really thinking about the significance of it. But I just want to roll through a few. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. Next. 1 Corinthians 15. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. Next. Galatians 3, there's neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 1, for he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. By the way, the doctrine of union with Christ makes a conversation related to predestination way more interesting. And... Uh, You'll think about that a little bit later. 1 Thessalonians 4. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. So those are a few examples of this language of in Christ being used over and over again. But then we get the, the flip side of it, the inverse, that Christ is in us. So first... Galatians 2, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Christ lives in me. Colossians 1, to them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Romans 8, but if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And 2 Corinthians 13, examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. And Ephesians 3, I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his Spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Okay, so over and over again, biblical authors are reminding us that Christ is in you, that you are in Christ, and then there's a handful of chunks that actually include both, that this dual reality, it's that we are in him and he is in us. In John 6, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in them. Okay, John 15, the passage we heard from this morning, remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. 1 John 4, this is how we live in him. No, we live in him and he in us. That he has given us of his spirit. Okay? So, 164 times, the language of union. The language that the Bible uses to say, here's how you and Jesus are related or connected. Not just with or next to or like or becoming more like. Christ is in you. And you are in him. That your identity and his identity have become entwined. That we are one with God the Son. And his name is now our name. And his record is is now our record. And his relationship with the Father has now been given to us. And so think about in Luke when the disciples come to Jesus and say, Lord, teach us how to pray. We notice that you have this loving, intimate relationship with the Father expressed through prayer. And we want that. 
We want to learn how to relate to God and speak to God and hear from God the way that you do. So they go, Lord, teach us to pray, which for so many of us, we, it's comforting to know even the first disciples struggled to pray. And what does Jesus say? All right. When you pray, say this. Our Father. What's he doing? He's saying, my Father is now your Father. And so he's our Father. He's inviting us to participate in his loving, intimate life-giving, joyful, harmonious relationship with God the Father. The relationship that has existed from all eternity past, the love between this Father and this Son, mediated by the Spirit, that was the foundation for the Father sending the Son into the world, was the foundation for Jesus' identity and ministry as he went through life, was the foundation for his sacrificial death, He does it in a loving obedience towards the Father. And Jesus begins to cast this vision to his disciples that the relationship I'm inviting you into is one of complete reconciliation so that my relationship with the Father is now yours. And you are invited to participate in this ongoing relationship of love. Now, I'll be honest, the doctrine of union actually requires some theological imagination. And I want to qualify that a little bit. When we talk about imagination, we don't mean pretending something is true when it's not. It has to do with how we envision God and how we understand our reality of things not seen. So the role of imagination and faith is an incredibly important one. It's what Tozer was doing. What comes into your mind when you picture God? That actually has to do with theological imagination. So union requires us to rethink our theological imagination and rethink the relationship or understand what kind of connection do I have with God and is the paradigm or the picture I have the right one? And I'm arguing that from the Bible, the picture that we are meant to have of our interaction with God, it's not imaginary in the fake sense, but something that is a paradigm we are living into and experiencing in real life is one of blessed union. So in short, here's what this means. There is good news, my friends. How does God think of you? What comes into God's mind when he sees you? What does God feel about you? Here's the answer. Well, what does God think about Jesus? How does the father feel about his son? Does the father love Jesus? Does the father like Jesus? It's clear that this is the nature of the biblical narrative. And whatever is true about Christ in regards to his relationship with the Father, is now true about us. And so we could go, yeah, what's my number? If I were to rate myself on a scale of 1 to 10, and it's not based on my record or my performance or how good I've been or how bad I've been or how pious I've been or how active I've been, but it's based on who Jesus is and what he's done, then, my friends, good news, you are all 10s. You are all tens. There is one perfect ten who has ever existed, and you are in him. And he is in you. This is the gospel of our union with Christ, and it's core to this vision of communion, common union, that together we are one with Jesus and learning how to live into that reality. Now, I'm not talking about something that only varsity-level Christians attain, right? That one day, work hard, and you too can be united with Christ. I'm telling you, this is already true about you, whether you knew it or not. And even though you struggle to believe it, this is already true. God feels the same way about you that he feels about 
Jesus. That's the good news. Let me do one more thing before we uh, come to the table to respond. I want to show you an icon by Andrei Rublev, who was a 14th century Russian iconographer. And uh, many of you have seen this, and in fact, it's at each of our communion stations and has been for a number of months now. This is uh, an icon, if you don't know, is a piece of visual theology. And even the language that's used when it comes to speaking of icons is that they aren't painted and they aren't drawn, but icons are actually written because they're communicating theology, words about God, in a visual sort of way. And so in Genesis 18, there's a story of these three angelic visitors that visit the home of Abraham and Sarah. And Abraham and Sarah practice some hospitality. And they create this experience that they don't really understand, but these three special visitors have shown up in their presence. And, uh, and that's how the story of Genesis 18 goes. Andre Rublev comes at it and goes, what if we imagined that these three visitors were actually the members of the Godhead? What if these angelic beings were actually God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit showing up in, in real space and time in a tangible sort of way? And so this icon has um, become uh, incredibly formational for the broader church of Jesus uh, over the last several centuries as a depiction of the Trinity. And so um, I'm going to just take a couple minutes with it because I love it so much. Uh, there's a few things that all these characters have in common, right? At first glance, this would appear to be a painting of three fairly ugly women, uh, but there's actually more going on there, right? So what they have in common is they all have the same face, right? They all have the same body. They all have, uh, if you can tell, they have wings and they have um, staffs in their hands and halos around their heads, which uh, ties them all together in this picture of, of deity, Right? And then they all have some blue that they're wearing, which again would be a color of divinity. And there's this sense that they are just kind of sitting and enjoying one another's presence, that they're not necessarily speaking, they're not there to get anything done, but they're simply just being together in love, the table being a picture of fellowship right? or relationship. And so there's a whole bunch that they have in common. But there's also some things that are distinct, right? Their, their garments look a little bit different. The father on the left has this kind of glowing gold translucent outer garment, which is kind of a picture of his glorious transcendence. God the Son in the middle has the blue representing his deity, but also has this brown garment representing his humanity. And God the Spirit here on the right has this green outer garment representing life and growth and newness. Okay? You can also see that behind them, if you can make out kind of these little images, behind the Father is this building or a house representing home and family. Behind God the Son is this tree representing the cross. And behind God the Spirit, if you can make that out, is actually a mountain representing the place where heaven and earth would meet. So there's some union, there's some commonality, there's some unity, but there's also some diversity. There's also some relationship. There's oneness, but there's also threeness, okay? And I would even say we could read into the, uh, the posture that they seem to have towards one another and the angle of their heads and the positioning of their bodies and that sort of thing. Right? It seems that as the Father sits here on the left, that Jesus, the Son, kind of leans into him, this kind of picture of loving obedience, of joyful submission, that my love for you, even though we are completely equal in nature, is expressed through this loving obedience and submission. The Father sends the Son. And then the story goes that the Father and the Son together would send the Spirit and the picture that we have in Jesus' life is that the Spirit is the one who's leaning into him, empowering him, enabling him to live the supernatural life he lived as a Spirit-filled human being. And then Jesus himself points back to the Father. 
He says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So I would argue that in this picture of three ugly women, we actually have the story of redemption unfolding before us. The Father sending the Son, the Father and Son together sending the Spirit, the Spirit drawing people to Jesus and Jesus bringing us home to the Father. It's a beautiful picture. Now here's the other crazy thing about this. There's three people sitting at the table, but the table has four sides. And where's the fourth side? Or in other words, where's the open seat? It's towards the viewer. And it's like the artist is saying, you, viewer, are invited to take a seat at this table. You are invited to join this dance. You, in the language of 1 Peter, are invited to participate in the divine nature. To let this loving union of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three and one, perfect love and joy, completely right relationship, Rublev says, come and pull up a chair. Some historians actually think that there was even originally a little mirror attached to this icon right there at the open chair so that we could picture ourselves as part of this communion. Now, it's a beautiful invitation, but it's a somewhat uh, intimidating one, maybe would be the right word. I shared a couple, weeks that I'm, a couple weeks ago that I'm from Philomath, Oregon, right? So I often find myself in fancy settings with like lots of forks and people that are smarter than me, and I don't know how to act, right? Anybody else do that? You guys are classier than me, I guess. Um, there's some tables that are intimidating to be invited to. How do you join this dinner party? right? Oh, yeah, I'm just going to go hang out with the Trinity. I guess I'll bring the beer. I don't know. Um, here's what I love, is where is that open seat? Well, it's right across from Jesus, isn't it? And he goes, just keep your eyes on me. Watch me. Do what I do. Let your life mirror mine. Let my identity become your identity. Yeah, my father, he's now our father. And the spirit, he's now in you too. The same spirit that empowered and guided me, that spirit's in you too. And the same mission in my life of pointing the world towards the God who made them and knows them and loves them, let that be your mission too. Join me in this work. Just watch me. I'll teach you how to do it. That's why we have this icon at the communion tables. And central to this invitation isn't just to go and do and to try harder, but it's come to this table weekly. Come to these tables together. See yourself in renewed, restored, reconciled relationship with the Father, Son, and Spirit. Receive your identity again. Find strength and hope and love in knowing that the way God sees his Son is now the way God sees you. So this week, the invitation is practice reconciliation with God, or in other words, communion. Practice communion. What do you need to take away from your life over the next six days to live more fully in the presence of the Trinity? What do you need to turn off? Netflix, video games, Facebook, social media, your music, your radio, whatever it is that would allow you to harness those times, even your brief commute or whatever it is, to pay attention to God. Every week we come to the table, we receive communion. We come to this uh, relationship with empty hands. My encouragement is that as you come this morning, don't, don't hurry, don't rush. Stay for a while. Sit at the table, pray, 
talk to God, confess sin, ask for help. Take it, even if you're there for a couple minutes, that's fine. I would encourage you this week to open your Bible often, even if you just have a few minutes. Engage scripture daily, listening to God through his word. Even just a chapter or something like that every day. For the next five days, engage the scripture. Create space to listen for God's voice and cultivate a rhythm of prayer. For our Lenten journey, take some time. In the morning, noon, after work, after school, at night, to simply be with God in prayer. You can figure out how to do that, but let's do that together. Sound good? All right. Why don't you stand? We will pray, and then I'm going to invite you to come to the table. And again, take as long as you need over these next couple minutes as we respond in worship. Father God, we are eternally grateful for the life that you've given us in Jesus, that you have filled us with your spirit, adopted us as your own, and though we don't deserve it, we could never earn it you have pronounced us as perfect tens. And so we know that, many of us in our heads, but we have a hard time believing it in our hearts. And so we pray that by the power of your spirit, that you would let those coins drop today, that you would open our eyes to our belovedness, that we would be reminded of our baptismal identity as your people united with your son. And we pray that out of this security, out of this strong sense of identity, that we would then be freed up to live a life of love in this world, in our homes, in our workplaces, in this church community, in the city, and everywhere else. We pray that we truly, as Jesus called us to, would learn to love as he has loved us. So we thank you for your presence right now in this moment. You're everything we need Our hearts are satisfied in you. We love you and we trust you in Jesus' name.